0: Again, welcome, members and guests, a pleasure to have you this afternoon. Thank you again for taking time from your very busy schedules to join us today uh, for this important event. And again, on behalf of the Canadian Club, my name is Danny Asaf and have the pleasure of serving as the president of the club for this season and delighted to be your host this afternoon. And again, to extend a very warm welcome to you all for joining us. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been very proud of its ability to bring you leading speakers from both home and abroad on issues that matter to us. Through our programs and our events, our young and youth leader programs, our joint events, our diversity partnership, and our media and social media opportunities, we've been able to provide this to Canadians for decades. And on that note, if you'd give me a small indulgence to tell you about a, about, of, about a couple of our exciting upcoming events, I would like to tell you about an event we're having on February 29th, where the Canadian Club will feature a distinguished panel of the leaders of some of our biggest pension funds namely Mark Wiseman at CPPIB, Ron Mark at Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, and Michael Latimer at OMERS to tell us what they see in today's current Canadian and foreign investment climate and how they're navigating their funds in today's world. And next, on March 3rd, uh, we'd we'd ask you to join us in hosting the the former Dragon's Den, Arlene Dickinson, a member as she sits down with a group of female business leaders to talk about one of Canada's other unexploited resources or not fully exploited resources, women entrepreneurs. You can order your tickets at our website, CanadianClub.org, and also learn more about our upcoming events. And I also ask you to join us on Twitter, via Twitter, and join the conversation on CDNCLBTO. I would like to take an opportunity to express, express special thanks today to Rogers Cable, uh, which is represented by Pam Dinsmore, and like to thank them for their support of this event this afternoon. We would also like to thank mediaevents.ca, Canada's online event space, and Rogers TV for broadcasting today's program. Now I will take an opportunity to introduce our head speaker and look forward to getting on to our main event. Now it is clear that society has changed, technology has changed, and it has impacted many important businesses and industries in this country. Financial services, for example, and of course, media. As Canadians, this is important to us because we take pride in some of the leaders that we have in these industries and what they've been able to contribute to our economy, and also what they've been able to contribute to our social lives. As I referred to earlier, there is no doubt that television programming, TV news, cultural programming is something that plays a big role in uniting this country culturally by creating these common cultural experiences, and also informing us of the things around us locally and nationally. And there is no doubt that an informed society is a productive society, is an involved society, and ultimately the bedrock of any democracy. And as we were talking about at lunch today, there is no doubt that the things that bring us together, the things that make us feel closer to one another, are the things that allow us to do things together that we could never do individually and make this country great. And it is in that regard we look at organizations such as the CRTC and what their work is. And we look at the fact that they regulate more than 2,000 broadcasters. These include TV services, AM and FM radio stations, as well as telecommunications carriers. Jean-Pierre Blay, the head of the CRTC, in the role of chairman, a position he's held since 2012, is someone that is guiding this this, this Commission today through these very turbulent and dynamic times. Prior to serving on this, as Chairman of the CRTC, he enjoyed a successful career, successful career in the Federal Public Service. Before his current role, the Quebec native served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Board Secretariat's Government Operations Sector, and for seven years he served as Assistant Deputy Minister of Cultural Affairs in the Department of Canadian Heritage. His responsibilities in that portfolio included copyright, modernization, broadcasting, and Canada's cultural industries and the arts, a broad spectrum of issues that I'm sure come to play every day in his role. Mr. Blay also served as Assistant Deputy Minister of International Intergovernmental Affairs at Canadian Heritage. And it may interest you to know that the CRTC Chairman served as the Commissioner as as served the Commission, also served the Commission earlier in his career. In the 1990s, Mr. Blay parlayed a legal career into roles as Senior Legal Counsel, General Counsel Broadcasting, and Executive Director Broadcasting at the CRTC. Mr. Blay, it is truly my pleasure to turn our podium over to you. The Canadian Club podium is yours.
1: We live in a rapidly evolving digital world. You're using technology to work, play, and connect with each other. You spend a lot of time watching, listening, and consuming media. Technology has become essential in every part of our lives, from health to education, from safety to security, and to the strength of the economy. You deserve communications networks and services that you can count on. The CRTC plays an important role to make that a reality. We ensure that you have access to a world-class communication system, one with reliable and secure networks, and choice of affordable and high-quality services, whether you're living in Kujuk, working in the prairies, or sitting in a cafe in Montreal. We protect you from unwanted calls and spam while ensuring businesses can continue to compete in the global marketplace. We ensure you can create and share your stories, whether on the radio, television, or over the Internet. You can shape the future. your CRTC at crtc.gc.ca
2: Thank you, Danny, for your introduction, and I can assure you all the footage in there was filmed in Canada. (laughs) Whatever course you decide upon, there's always someone to tell you you're wrong. American essayist and lecturer Ralph Waldo Emerson uttered those words a century and a half ago. We at the CRTC can relate to them. Some disapprove of the course the CRTC is setting. Our course upsets entitlements and threatens their livelihoods. These interests express their disapproval clearly and regularly. We all see it on TV, hear it on radio, read it in media releases, newspapers, blog posts. The many Canadians who take part in our consultations, however, and appear at our hearings tell another story. They approve of responsive, forward-looking regulations that strip away old entitlements and foster a dynamic marketplace that rewards intelligence, creativity, and daring. This difference of opinion is natural. The intense and continuing challenge of the communication system is going through gives rise to anxiety about the future and therefore doubt and even fear about the course we're taking, especially among those with a vested interest in keeping things just the way they are. That difference of opinion is what brings me here today, to shed light on our course, and in the process, dispel some of that anxiety, or at least, in sharing details of our course, persuade more of you to join us on the journey. Before doing so, I would like to acknowledge that we meet today on the traditional territory of the First Nations peoples. I thank them and pay respect to their elders. I also thank the Canadian Club for hosting our gathering and Rogers for sponsoring it, though I warn the Rogers people they likely won't agree with everything I'll say. By the way, a French version of these remarks are now available on our website. Whatever course you decide upon, there's always someone to tell you that you're wrong. Emerson went on, he said, There are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your critics are right. To map out a course of action and follow it to an end requires courage. At the CRTC, the course we follow is not just our own. We are reaching out to Canadians in new and ever more accessible ways, bringing them into the middle of our conversations about the future of broadcasting and telecommunications in this country. Our invitation to them is simple. Let's talk TV. Let's talk broadband. And they're responding. They're telling us they want to take back control of their communication system. Ladies and gentlemen, Inspired by their resolve, I want to talk to you today about three aspects of that system and the course Canadians have urged us and continue to urge us to take to deal with them. The first is the future of television news. We are nearing the end of a consultation on the future of local and community television programming, one that is open and transparent, and which follows, as all such processes do, a proven methodology collecting, analysing, and testing evidence. Hearings are not cocktail parties where you can say anything and not expect opinions to be challenged and evidence to be scrutinised. Canadians are telling us they value local news for its capacity to connect them directly with their communities, that local news helps them contextualise world events, and that local news makes them better prepared to participate in Canada's democratic, economic, and cultural affairs. Yet the whirlwind of technological change is buffeting the news business about. Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, and many more are but a variation on a theme. The disruptive impact of communication technology is having on legacy businesses. At least eight Canadian newspapers stopped publishing in 2014. Others did in 2015 and 2016. Those that remain are consulting newsroom, trimming copy to accommodate more photos. There are more than 1,100 radio stations in the country, which are inherently and proudly local and focused on the needs of their communities. The talk radio format, it must be said, is popular in most major urban centres, yet the Radio sector must also contend with the growing popularity of music streaming services and the widespread availability of Wi-Fi-enabled cars. Local television stations are facing their own challenges. A few years ago, the employees of Czech in Victoria acted at great personal financial risk to save their local TV station. Since then, an alarming number of television stations have reduced the length of their newscasts, cut back on staff, and centralised productions of news programming. Rogers-owned Omni did last May when its stations in Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton and Vancouver dropped their local third-language newscasts. Bell did in November when it laid off more than 350 employees, many of whom worked in the newsroom of its local television properties. CHCH Hamilton did when it cut local news programming from 80 hours per week to just 17 and a half in December. I worry, I really worry, that such apparently incremental cuts will affect the quality, quantity and capacity of local television news. Canada is lucky to have as many as 110 local television stations, hundreds more community radio stations and newspapers. Yet at our public hearing, Kirk LaPointe said, and I quote, we are too small of a country to permit broadcasters to further dim the lights in the news studios town by town. Now, Mr. LaPointe is the former head of CTV News and founding executive uh, editor of the National Post. He speaks from a breadth of experience few can match. If we allow each station to be plucked away in the name of profits and losses, what are we left with when the last is removed? What will emerge to replace them? Some see the supper-hour local television newscasts as the hallmark of an age gone by, something that can be replaced by immediate and engaging technology or which can be portioned out in bite-sized chunks. In fact, the reverse is true. Television news is as relevant to and valued by Canadians as at any point in its history. I fear those who manage media the corporate executive, accountants, lawyers, and MBAs have lost touch with their audiences. Analysts on Bay Street focus on quarterly results, profits, balance sheets, share prices, and other calling cards of private wealth. They do not care nearly as much about the health of costly endeavors that preserve the wealth of our democracy. What they must appreciate and must be reminded of is they hold an asset in trust, an asset that is not otherwise available through regular commercial channels. The value to society of vibrant, free, and responsible press is immeasurable. It is a public trust. It is a public good. Television news belongs to the marketplace of ideas, not the marketplace of higher dividends for investors. May we never lose sight of this truth. Those of a certain age and bent uh, will argue that digital-based citizen journalism is every bit as effective, maybe more so, as traditional media. That the immediacy with which Twitter, Facebook, Periscope, and Meerkat deliver huge volumes of information to computers, tablets, and smartphones should be valued over stayed, scheduled newscasts. I remain unconvinced, for now at least. In fact, I wonder if their mantra stems from a desire to rationalize job cuts, because although a certain value can be placed on the velocity of information these services provide, the picture they paint at the moment is at best half finished. YouTube, Facebook and Twitter have been in business barely ten years. Can we as a society afford to entrust something as fundamental to our democracy as news reporting, to services like these that are still in their infancies. Newspapers have honed their journalistic practices over centuries, television and radio stations over decades. Although I have a deep respect and appreciation for history, by no means do I cling to relics of the past. I appreciate that disruptive technologies empower individuals, that a smartphone and a YouTube account is all someone needs to tell stories that are in the public interest and to share them instantly with millions of people. These media may one day emerge as the news reporting technologies of the future. Technology is having many positive impacts on how journalism and journalists now gather and report the news. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Gutenberg moment of our lives. The Freeman of the Press Foundation provides open-source software that enables citizens to share information securely and anonymously with journalists. The Globe and Mail has adopted this technology. The CBC uses a similar one, probably others. Some wondered why Vice was the first party to appear at our public hearing on local and community television. To them, I say, there is no monopoly on good journalism. As Marshall Letterman wrote recently in the Globe and Mail, There's a lot to learn from alternative outlets ranging from Vice to ProPublica. I look forward to the moment when we can say with certainty that they and their peers have fully arrived as genuine, trustworthy and accountable news media outlets. I hope that many more news innovators hasten to arrive. Their help is needed. By and large, though, the strength of digital technologies today lies in giving citizens the opportunity to connect with and be be present in their communication system. It does not lie in news analysis. The investigative functions these channels present today are simply not developed enough to be considered robust and effective. My fear is that incumbent media, for whom these technologies are extremely disruptive, will be tempted to over-rely on these services in order to improve their bottom lines and they will lose sight of the important public service they provide as a result. If the journalist, trained to professional standards, who subscribes to a particular code of ethics and who aspires to the highest standards for gathering and interpreting facts to create valuable, intelligent news analysis disappears, in the absence of a proven alternative, I fear the future of the fourth estate as a pillar of democracy will be at risk. In the absence of strong and confident journalism, who will comfort the afflicted? Who will afflict the comfortable? Ask yourself whether, absent the resource to delve deep into stories, journalists like Daniel LeBlanc and Campbell Clark of the Globe and Mail would have ever broken the federal sponsorship scandal, whether CTV's Robert Fife would have dug deep enough to expose Mike Duffy's alleged spending improprieties, Whether CBC News in Saskatoon would have shone as brilliant a light on 30 years of abuses of Indigenous men and women by the city's police force. Whether reporters at Actualité would have spent eight months investigating how the Canadian military handles complaints of sexual assault and harassment. We know the cost of producing high-quality local content is significant. No one in Canada spends more to produce journalism than printed daily newspapers and private conventional television stations. Both face a number of challenges, partly due to a softening of the advertising market. Their business model are under threat, and many of us wonder what will become of them in the next decade, absent fundamental changes and the emergence of alternatives. Now, some are taking action. La Presse, and more recently the Toronto Star, have bet heavily on the success of their online model. So much so that La Presse no longer prints weekday newspapers. This was a bold decision, but look how now it has borne fruit. Since the Free La Presse app was launched in 2013, daily readership reached 243,000 people. That's well above the paper's peak printed circulation of 221,000 in 1971. What's more, the volume of letters to the editors quadrupled in 2015, Readership jumped 22% since September, and the paper now enjoys a 63% market share among 25- to 54-year-olds. La Presse is clearly doing something right, including incorporating video content that, to me, looks like television. The good news for broadcasters is that change of this level is achievable, with a lot of desire and investment and a bit of imagination. There is more than enough money in the broadcasting system to support the creation of news and local information programming and new approaches to monetize each. The challenge before broadcasters is not to find new sources of money to fund such change, but to redistribute the money already in the system to accommodate the new business reality. The enterprise that does will surely have a leg up on even its social media competitors who cannot devote nearly the same amount of resources. And efforts to news gathering. Ladies and gentlemen, Canadians are saying they want news reporting and analysis. I'm here to tell you that broadcasters hold a social contract with Canadians. In exchange for using public airwaves to bring their productions into the homes and onto the devices of Canadians across the country, these enterprises also have a duty to serve the public interest. They must ensure that news reporting and analysis particularly at the local level, be done to a high standard. We at the CRTC will hold them to account for their social contract obligations in the months ahead. The licence renewal of the major broadcasters are coming due for renewal in 2017. Canadians expect us to pay close attention to the quality and quantity of news and public affairs programming they offer. If they fail to live up to their end of the bargain, with individual Canadians, we will not hesitate to take action. Ladies and gentlemen, local television news is failing us, but it need not. The system sits from a position of strength. It is staffed by good people who are trained in some of the best journalism schools in the world. It is desired by audiences. A recent numerous report on audience data shows the local television evening newscast garners 20% of all households in some markets. Just as importantly, it is well-funded. In 2014, TV stations spent more than $470 million on local programming and news, while broadcasters spent a further $150 million on community television channels. Those facts tell me four things. One, that the industry is rich in resources, the people who work in and around local TV news are dedicated to their tasks. They, are, they care about their craft and their communities. I urge news operators to take advantage of that enthusiasm and fund the ideas it presents to create new products that will captivate information-hungry audiences. Two. Local news that is rich in information and analysis and that offers high-quality production values can be a competitive differentiator in a multi-platform environment. Canadians crave this content. The broadcaster that offers it best will triumph. Three, while Canadians continue to watch television newscasts, broadcasters are indeed having a difficult time to monetize this audience because advertisers are investing more and more in digital platforms. Tell those marketers and advertisers they are misguided. Local television news delivers significant, live, mass audiences on platforms that do not zap or block ads. Four, the broadcaster that finds ways to adapt the business model to suit the new information-rich, on-demand programming environment will thrive. Ladies and gentlemen, we recently wrapped up two weeks of oral hearing, on or nearly two weeks of oral hearing, on local and community television. I listened as Canadians spoke with intelligence and passion to many of the issues I just described, while corporate executives who own luxury yachts and private helicopters came looking for subsidies. When broadcasters appear before the CRTC looking for new licenses, or approvals for mega-transaction, they make all sorts of promises about how they will invest in programming. But the minute we initiate a policy hearing, we are told the cupboards are bare. Capitalism and journalism make strange bedfellows, but news reporting and government subsidies make even stranger bedfellows. So. Before we rush down the garden path of creating funds to prop up the business case of local television news, if a valid public policy argument were indeed to be made, let us at least ask ourselves a question. Should civic authorities, who should be held to account through news reporting, have direct or indirect involvement on what news is or is not investigated, gathered, or reported upon? Preserving the public good that is journalism, in a democratic society, is a worthy goal. But is it worth upholding if the implementation of a president setting solution risks the very principle of journalistic independence from interference from government? If our society does not tolerate interference by corporate boardroom in what is reported in television newscasts, or indeed what is not reported, why would it be any wiser to open the gate down the garden path to undo government interference? If Canadians value local television news, should they not help finance it through arm's-length foundations, if indeed advertising revenue can no longer do so fully? By the same token, should they not look to broadcasters themselves for solutions? Those in legal circles say hard cases make bad law. Hard cases also make bad regulations. If, in a rush to find solutions, we dismiss these fundamental principles gained over centuries and resting as a cornerstone of our democracy, what have we really gained? Since I can't yet speak about the outcome of the hearing, although I'm sure you're dying to find out, our hearing on local and community television, let me now turn to our Let's Talk TV decisions and how they are being implemented. Ladies and gentlemen, you will no doubt have heard that important changes are coming to the television system of Canadians on March 1st. That's the date by which cable and satellite companies must begin offering a new, small, basic television package that prioritizes local programming. Part of the reason we mandated this change was to make television services more affordable. Part was to underscore the role of local content in the television system in part was to re-emphasize the social duty of broadcasters to provide such an important public service. In addition to the basic, service, the basic package, Canadians will be able to choose the individual channels they want, either on a pick-and-pay basis or through a smaller bundle of channels. We mandated this change with an eye to responding to technology trends and addressing the public's concern Canadians told us during the Let's Talk TV proceeding that the basic package offered by their cable and satellite providers were too big and too expensive. Canadians welcomed our decisions when they were announced nearly a year ago. Change is being introduced in a responsible and measured way to ensure the television industry has time to adjust. Some have responded favourably. Pick and pay, for example, has already caught on as a service delivery model among some service providers. Others have dug in their heels. They weren't of red ink and job cuts. They are trying to create wedges and change public policy well after the proverbial horse has left the barn. Ladies and gentlemen, cable and satellite companies should not view this change as an opportunity to replace business practices designed to maximize property profits from captive customers with newer forms of anti-consumer behaviour. Instead, I urge them to make the products they sell even better for Canadians and put viewers, their customers, back in control of their television. This is their moment to shine. We will be watching how they implement these changes over the coming months and we will not hesitate to act if we see some companies disregarding the wishes of Canadians, our decisions, and the spirit of the outcomes they were intended to achieve. I've said many times before, this change won't be easy for everyone. It will yield growing pains. It may even force some out of business. It has certainly put us, as regulators, under greater scrutiny. I welcome that scrutiny. We're staying our course. We're restoring Canadians' control over their communication system. We're using their input to help us build a framework for change. We're making decisions in the public interest rather than catering to private ones. The television system must follow our lead. Corporate executives cannot bury their heads in the sand and pretend that change isn't happening. They must must rise up and meet the challenge of of the new content ahead on. Old ways of doing business, of squeezing every last drop of profit out of simultaneous substitution and rented, made-in-American content is no longer sustainable. Truly great content is what draws viewers. Those that make that content will thrive. Although they proceed somewhat uncertainly into the future, broadcasters at least begin this journey in a position of strength. Our industry is replete with funds and talent and supported by videovores with a healthy appetite to view content. Canadians have a proven ability to create compelling world-class audiovisual content. Their further innovations will help them succeed to an even greater degree in the traditional and digital platforms. This new disruptive television age is created by the increasing prevalence and pervasiveness of broadband internet technology. Which brings me to my final topic today, the future of broadband regulation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's easy to think of broadband as the delivery mechanism for TV and games and movies, but it's much more. It's a conduit for accessing healthcare services, a pathway to government services, a forum for teaching and learning. It's also enhancing national productivity through innovations such as smart traffic grids, machine-to-machine communication, and the Internet of Things. The CRTC is currently in the midst of a sweeping review of Canada's basic telecommunications services. The challenge before us is how to ensure Canadians can access fast, reliable, and affordable broadband networks wherever they live and work. And each of us participates more and more in the digital economy, and as we do so, we require more and more bandwidth, The CRTC set its minimum speed targets for broadband internet in 2011, 5 megabits per second for downloads and 1 for uploads. Indeed, Canada's made great strides in the last five years. 96% of Canadians have access to internet speeds of at least 5 megabits per second. But each percentage point shy of 100% represents hundreds of thousands of Canadian households and businesses. That don't. Today other major nations are setting higher targets. The United States is aiming for minimum speeds of 25 megabits per second. Germany is starting speeds of 50. We must now re-examine our own aspirational targets. Our review of the basic telecommunications services began last April. We have since received over 26,200 interventions. Over 100 interveners have asked us to appear at the oral public hearing, and nearly 24,000 Canadians have already completed our questionnaire so far. The response shows this is an issue Canadians take to heart. We're reaching out via traditional channels as well as online ones. It's just as important for us to hear from those who have no or limited Internet service as it is to hear from those that enjoyed good services, like many of you, who live here in Silver Towers of Toronto, Toronto. That's why we are holding focus groups with Canadians who live in small communities that either do not have access to broadband services or underserved by available services. The next step in our consultation is a public hearing that gets underway this April. Parties will have an opportunity to bring evidence to the table, which will be scrutinized and debated by people with contrary views. My colleagues on the Commission and I look forward to listening to arguments and challenging claims and weighing the evidence we receive. I hope the hearing yields as much attention as our first and second phases did. I also hope it brings more municipalities, hospitals, teaching institutions and other civil society groups into the discussion. The internet may be a source of entertainment for many, but is also a key to our social and economic competitiveness as a nation. Ladies and gentlemen, I said at the outset of these remarks that many Canadians and companies approve of the course we at the CRTC are setting. They are responding positively by innovating and changing their practices and behaviours. Others? Well, others are just complaining. They're forecasting doom and gloom, job cuts, revenue losses, station closures. They run off to court, They run off to Cabinet to seek relief. It's the right to do so, but it does not make them right. I congratulate the members of the first group for seeing the potential ahead of us, for listening to the public's demands, adopting new business models and giving Canadians control over their communication system. That's the way to succeed. But I'm less assured by the actions of the second group Their stock in trade these days seems to be divisive and self-interested polemics rather than the forward-looking action that is required. For our part, we at the CRTC will remain true to the words of Ralph Walder Emerson. We're staying the course. We've mapped with Canadians and we'll follow it to the end. We're not standing still and hoping the storm of change passes us by. We're reaching out to Canadians, we're putting them at the centre of our conversations about the future of broadcasting and telecommunications in this country. We're giving them back control of their communication system by setting regulatory courses that support public, not private wealth. I urge all of you in this room and those beyond these walls to follow our lead. Listen to Canadians, embrace the change they crave, Look ahead, plan for tomorrow, stay this course. Thank you very much.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Purdy, and I'm a director of the Toronto Club. And as such, uh, I'm not here to provide a rebuttal, but rather... <laughs> As the Director of the Toronto Club, I'm here to thank Mr. Blay for sharing his thoughts with us today. Uh, The choices that we now face, uh, the choices that we now have in terms of technology, uh, content, and how we access that content is indeed overwhelming. And the decisions that the CRTC has to make must be equally overwhelming. So I really appreciate Mr. Blay coming with us today, explaining his thoughts and his views. Uh, And I think indeed outlining how important it is. And never before has it been more important for our country to be unified, to have access to content, have access to these stories, and have access to them with a Canadian lens and a Canadian way. So really appreciate his time and effort. Uh, We appreciate the way you outlined how there's opportunities. Technology is indeed intimidating and scary. Disruption is equally scary, but there are opportunities. And um, I think everybody in this room, and I look around and see all my colleagues and peers, Um, I think we're up for the challenge, and we will uh, undoubtedly uh, continue to lobby for benefits and incentives and tax breaks. But, (laughs) But we will also accept your challenge to embrace technology, embrace the opportunities, and try and grow the business, not just for our shareholders, but most importantly for our customers and for our nation. So thank you for your comments. Much appreciated.
0: Well I'd like to echo uh, David's uh, th- words of thanks and uh, as the president of the club, I get an opportunity to reflect a little bit about what we've accomplished today And for anybody that thought they were just going to come to hear how the CRTC is going to help you launch a YouTube channel, we're all in for a, we were all in for a great surprise. There is no doubt the club continues to take the pri- take pride in being able to bring issues that are important to us issues that we may disagree upon, but issues that we ultimately want to solve for the benefit of our country. And you raised important issues of capitalism, journalism, financial viability, democracy. These are things that ultimately will have to be reconciled for the national interest to be served. And we do thank you for your leadership and for coming up here and telling us what your thoughts are. And as the Canadian Club, we are proud to bring, if we, are, if we are apart, it's very difficult to do things in common, and we are proud that we're able to bring everybody in this room to hear about these issues and ultimately advance what we all believe in, which is the future health, the democratic economic health of this country, and with leadership like yours, there is no doubt that we are, on, we are going to be served very well. I would like to also take the opportunity again to thank Rogers Cable for its generous sponsorship, Rogers TV for airing this program in the days to come, and also Air Canada for its generous sponsorship as our official airline sponsor. And I would like to thank you again for taking the time to come here today, hearing this important discussion, and this meeting is now adjourned. Good afternoon.